You are listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. Resonate is a collegiate church planning network in the Northwest. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at resonate.net. What's up, Resonate? Good to see you guys. Uh, Today we are in this series called Third Way, and this is our second kind of installment of that. And so last week we began with this idea that as people who are called to live out uh, the purpose and the mission of Jesus, um, what he says to his people, what Jesus says is uh, he gives us a metaphor for kind of who we're supposed to be, and he gives this metaphor of salt and light. And the idea is that salt, when it's inserted into a substance, it flavors it and it preserves it and, uh, and light ultimately, you know, illuminates. And so, um, what Jesus is saying is this idea of what we bring to the culture, what we bring to society. It has to be something that flavors. It has to be something that preserves. It it has to be something that affects the world around us. And, And here's that statement. He says, Hey, if salt loses its saltiness, it's worthless. Meaning this, if, if, if the God's people are inserted into a context, but they lose who they are, they lose their message, they lose what makes them unique, then it's ultimately not worthwhile. It's kind of worthless. And so when we begin to think about what does it look like for us as we think about taking Jesus and the kingdom of God um, to our campuses and communities, uh, there has to be a message there. There has to be substance that we bring to this. It has to be something that's different than the world around us, or it's just a random gathering of people, right? It's just a, a random connection of people. And so what is that thing? And what does it look like? And so we explored this reality that in our culture, um, really what happens is this, is there's this kind of polarization and there, there's this division that basically it's like this way or that way. It's conservative or it's progressive. It's left, it's right. Um, and, and when I think about these things, it reminds me of uh, something that I did when I was in college. Um, when I was in college, one of the things that we did as like a pastime uh, was we went mudding. And I don't know if you've been mudding. Um, it, it's basically where you take a vehicle into mud and you, and you just try to tear everything up. And so uh, I, I don't know if that's a, a normative thing. When I think about Northwesterners going out into, uh, into the, you know, nature. It's like, let's hike, let's see something. Uh, but for Texas, it's like, let's get a machine and tear stuff up. That's kind of the way it operates. And so, um, we would take, and I had this, like, I had the worst mudding machine ever. It was a 92 Ford Ranger, um, two wheel drive, um, with like street slicks. And so we, I would take it out there and, uh, you know, it would rain and we would find a place to get out there. Um, and, and what would happen every single time was that my little Ford Ranger, uh, it would, it would always get stuck. It would always, and here's the oftentimes um, what would happen is, is that as, as people begin to drive on these roads, um, what would happen is that, uh, that it would kind of churn up the dirt and ultimately it would create these ruts. And, uh, and in East Texas, there's this clay and it's just as slippery as it can be. And so that what, what would happen is these ruts would get formed. And then no matter how you would try to steer your will, um, it would just, it would just continue to push you into the ruts. And, and so it would take enormous energy and ultimately uh, I would get stuck. But I always had, um, uh, when we would go mudding, I always had a friend and this was in a very essential friend because this friend owned a Jeep Wrangler. And, uh, and, and so this four wheel drive, it's made for that kind of stuff. That's like all it's made for, um, that looking cool. And so those are the two things that why you would own a Jeep Wrangler, right? But in his uh, Jeep Wrangler, he had something that was incredibly helpful and that is a winch. 
And so if you don't know what a winch is, it's like a hook on a string that's attached to the front of your vehicle that's powerful enough to basically like tow your vehicle vertically. So it'd, it'd take you out of anything. And so I could just just go and I could, uh, you know, get as stuck as I wanted to be because I knew that my friend would be behind me and he could just winch me out. And this is where we're at as we think about who we are, um, is, this, is this moment where we think, how is it that we navigate this world? Because there's ruts that are just taking, and, and we might be trying to steer our wheel out of this, but ultimately it just keeps us kind of centered in this. And it's hard sometimes for Christians to be able to figure out how to get out of the ruts of the left and the ruts of the right and be able to say, what do we say to the world around us? And so in this way, we need, uh, we need a winch. Um, but instead of the winch being on a Jeep Wrangler, the winch is the word of God. And uh, I know that that's a thin uh, tie together, but, um, but today we're going to be talking about how we begin to get out of these ditches um, and really begin to figure out what does it look like um, to be on the solid ground of the Bible. And so um, today, as we look at this, um, we are going to build upon really what we started last week. And last week we talked about um, really this ethic of a compre- or this comprehensive ethic of life that from being before people are born to after they're born in, in the good times and disadvantaged times that what we're doing is we're a people that protect people that as people of uh, with a gospel worldview we are protecting those who cannot protect themselves or we're, we're advocating for those who cannot advocate for themselves and this is foundational um, because everybody was made in the image of God and so people that are made in the image of God here's where we stand in the gap for them. And we begin to say, hey, there's worth, dignity, and, um, and purpose, but this is because they've been made in the image of God. That is the significance of why we would ultimately point our lives to protecting others around us. And so today we get into um, a book of the Bible. And so we're going to read an entire book of the Bible. We're going to look at an entire book of the Bible to be able to get um, really what does it look like for us to be unifiers in a divided society? How is it that we are salt and light? How is it that we bring people together and not ultimately create more division in our world? And there is a key to this. And so if you think we're gonna be in a whole book of the Bible, that's kind of crazy. But the book of the Bible is really key because the book of the Bible we're gonna be in is Philemon. And if you've ever read Philemon, uh, it's very short. And so we're gonna get into it today. And in it, um, and this is what I love about the Bible, it's, this is a powder keg um, of being able to tackle a cultural issue. And what, what Paul does, the writer of this, this letter, is he takes and he's writing this, um, to, this uh, to one of his disciples. And what does he, what does he do is he, he applies this idea of being salt and light, um, what Jesus says, and he applies this and he begins to radically reform a deeply held value. And he does it from the lens of creating a gospel worldview. So if you have your copy of scripture, you can meander to Philemon and uh, in Philemon, you'll be able to find um, this letter um, to, uh, to this guy. All right. So we're obviously, it's only one chapter. So obviously we're in chapter one, verse one. Here we go. It says this, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister and Archippus, our fellow soldier and to the church that meets in your home. I, I love this little line here because it kind of helps us to understand how they were organized. And we think about um, what does it look like to, to saturate the gospel in every context. And they had all these little churches that met in these homes and that's kind of how they operated. It says this, Verse three, grace and peace to you from God, our father 
and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all of his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith might be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing that we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is none other than Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I'm sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor that you would do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated you from you for a little while was that he, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. He is dear to you to me, but even dear to you, both as a fellow man and a brother in the Lord. Let's stop there. Because what we have is a, a really a radical concept here. And this is this concept that Paul is, is writing to what is evidentially a, a one of his disciples, a guy named Philemon. And Philemon um, is evidently an owner of a slave. And the owner of that slave is a guy named Onesimus. And at some point, Onesimus has left Philemon. We don't know if he was escaped or he was sent. And he has made his way to Paul. So most likely Paul was uh, interacting with that household of which Onesimus was a part of that household. And then Paul leaves. And at some point Onesimus leaves Philemon and he goes and he finds Paul. And in this, what Paul is doing is this incredible action. Does he be is beginning to address this cultural issue of slavery, but being able to apply this from this gospel worldview. And so here, here's what you need to understand. And here's what this looks like. So what you begin to see is this, is that Paul is writing to this guy named Philemon, and he is ultimately pointing him to a different direction. He is pointing him to a new direction for him to understand who he is supposed to be and what is it supposed to look like. And so in verse eight, it says this, although in Christ, I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do. It says this, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. Yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. Here's what he's saying. That there is something that I could do to say, hey, this is what is right and this is what is wrong. But Paul is, is doing something brilliant. He's trying to win the heart of Philemon. He's trying to be a unifier and not create division. He's trying to figure out how to begin to say, okay, there is a better way, Philemon, and I want to point you to the better way. And he says this, I want to appeal to you on the basis of love. And that's a really important thing because when we see this and we see this entire thing, that this idea of what we are to do and how we are to operate in our world is really what Paul is doing. He's attacking a social issue, but he's doing this through, uh, through this understanding of love and really what he's doing through this entire narrative, what he's doing through this entire letter to Philemon is he's instilling with him a radical new paradigm. 
And that radical new paradigm is this, that that Philemon is now to operate from an ethic of others-centeredness. An ethic of others-centeredness. Now, we need to understand to fully get what he's doing that there's two ways for, for people to think at that time. One is through the understanding of a shame and honor culture. In a shame and honor culture, what you begin to have is the deep, uh, deeply held value of strength. And so you begin to have people who are strong and people who are weak. And that created the social construct that there were strong people that lorded over weak people. But then what we begin to see is the gospel gets inserted into this day and age. The gospel gets inserted into this place. And what we begin to see is a shift or or an alternative worldview, not of a a shame and honor culture, but a culture that's based upon an other's centeredness. And that other centeredness has at its core the value of love. Do you understand the difference? Because here's what happens is Jesus comes and he begins to, to teach people that there's a radical new way to live. And that new way to live is not this ethic of self-centeredness, but this ethic of other-centeredness. And this other-centered ethic is based upon this understanding of love. And what happens is you begin to get this group of people that begin to have this radical new way of thinking. And this radical new way of thinking begins to be persecuted, but it begins to take hold. And what we begin to see is the church and the early church a couple thousand years ago, it begins to grow significantly because it has a radically different paradigm. And so this new, this new ethic, this ethic of others centeredness, see the gospel replaces the ethic of power with the others centered ethic. So we go, if I'm just to boil this down, we go from taker to giver. Like this is just the radical bare minimum essentials that we in our world, we begin to see a taking mentality be replaced with a giving mentality. And this taking mentality was pervasive that there was people who were takers and those are people who are taken from. Now I want you to get that in this context, slavery was uh, something that was a, a widely held value in terms of, it was about 30% of the population were slaves. And so what Paul is doing is he's, he's ultimately causing the culture to shift, but doing it from the inside out. He's doing this from a position of love, not a position of force. He's drawing people in. He's not doing what, what we do in our context is just yell louder and try to, you know, and try to create more, uh, radical natures with just being able to say, just, if I can just get louder, maybe my point will get across. Paul does something radically different. He goes from taker to giver. Now, I want you to get that what happens in this has been salt for the last 2,000 years across our, across our world. If you think, hey, what has been the impact of Christianity? Tim Keller uh, relates a, 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 a an experiment or like a thought experiment that a professor, a history professor does with his students every year, just to show them how significantly our, our ethic has been changed by this. What he does is this, um, this professor says, uh, gives this scenario and says this, imagine it's late at night, it's a lonely street and you see a little old lady who's walking along with this big purse filled with jewels and filled with money. So that's the scenario. He says there's three things about it um, that you have to understand. One, this little old lady wouldn't be able to resist you if you wanted to take that. 
If you wanted to take that from her, she wouldn't be able to resist you. Uh, Number two, she would not be able to identify you. And number three, in this context, it's not even really against the law. It's not even really something that would be, uh, there's not a law against doing something like this. So she wouldn't be able to resist. She wouldn't be able to identify you. And there's not really a law against this. And he asked his students, do you do this? Yes or no? And why? And he says this, almost 100% of the students say, no, no, I don't take the, the, the purse from the, uh, from the helpless old lady. And then he says, why? And let me give you three, uh, three options. One option would be this. Option A would be that you wouldn't take it because to take from someone that is in that context would be dishonorable. It would be shameful. It would show you as being weak if you were to take advantage of someone who was weaker than you. And so that would be uh, something that would relate back to you feeling shame or dishonor for that. B, it would be that you don't take it because you think about her and you imagine her reality and you think about uh, what effect that action would have upon her and maybe people that would need uh, that that resource of those, that money or that jewelry. And you think about that, what that would do for, for her. It says, and, and, and C, it would really be none of the above. Like uh, it would be not, none of these categories. And he says this, when, when, when asked which one of these things would be the reason that you would not take the purse, um, almost 100% would say, well, it's B. It's B because you don't take it because you think about her and you imagine it would, what it'd be like for her. And this history professor says, okay, so I want you to understand, if you were to think about A, um, the idea of not doing it because it would be dishonorable or shameful, that is a, that is a self-regarding ethic. Um, that self-regarding ethic comes out of the mentality of a shame and honor culture. And that shame and honor culture where strength is ultimately the value. So that strength and honor culture basically says, hey, strength, whether you're powerful enough, that is the value that everything is related around whether you have power or not. But that B option, the B option that you would regard whether, what would it be like for her, that is an other-centered ethic. And that is uh, regarding, that, that comes out of a culture where the, where the core value is love. And, and so he says this, whether you believe in God or not, or, or whether you believe in Christianity or not, your ethic of right and wrong has been changed or has been informed by this ethic of love and this ethic of others centeredness. And what happens is this, is this gets inserted into the world 2000 years ago because of Christianity. And and here's what happens. These Christians begin to inform a shame and honor culture about an entirely new ethic. And this is the ethic of other centeredness. And what happens is at first they're persecuted. Why? Because this attacks the people who are in power, right? The people who are up here and have power over people who are down here. But ultimately love wins, Ultimately, it begins to be that thing that others are drawn to, to be able to say, hey, an other-centered ethic is way better than a strength-centered ethic, than a self-regarding ethic. And what you begin to see is Christianity begins to take off, and Christianity begins to uh, ultimately become one of the dominant forces or the dominant force in terms of culture throughout our world because of this insertion of this other-centered ethic that is the greatest value of love. And in this, you've been shaped by that. And so what that does 
is that provides this, this backdrop on, on really how this begins to operate. And you see this letter to Philemon. You see this other-centered ethic begin to work against the strength-centered ethic here. And what you begin to see is he's appealing to Philemon. And it says this. Um, let's continue in verse 9. It's none other than Paul, an old man and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He's held in house arrest um, at, there in Rome. He says that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful to both you and to me. Now this is a play on his name. Onesimus uh, means useful or, or one who is beneficial. And so he says this, verse 12, I'm sending him who is my very heart back to you. Now, this is a fascinating way. And I think this is, I'm just going to create an aside here and tell you about what it looks like for Christians as we regard in, uh, as we take action towards issues in the world around us. What Paul does is there is an injustice, there's a violation of the core principle of uh, Christianity, which is this other-centered ethic, right? What does he do? He has he has Onesimus here and he has Philemon, right? But what he does is he sends Onesimus back to Philemon. And to send Onesimus back to Philemon is one of these things that engages the heart of Philemon. And as he engages the heart of Philemon, what this does is it radically changes. Instead of being isolated, instead of saying, okay, what we're going to do is pull back from this, he begins to insert this in order for change to happen. And so oftentimes uh, when we begin to, uh, when we begin to have these injustices and these issues, we can pull back instead of press into them and to be able to say, ultimately what we want to do is win hearts. Ultimately, what we want to do is press into this and help understand that um, as a believer, when we put our identity in Christ, we can put ourselves in uncomfortable situations and believe that God will change hearts and believe that God will do something. And so as we begin to say, what does it look like for us to return to this, that ultimately God has it all under control, that we can engage in this instead of being isolated from this. And this is what Christians have done for, for millennia. They have decided, okay, we're, we're going to pull back from this if there's an injustice instead of being able to say, hey, we have something to say about this. We're going to push into this and we're ultimately going to allow God to work this all out um, in God's time and God's effort. So this is this, this key thing. So we don't have isolation. So let's keep going and help us understand what this means. In verse 13, it says this, I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel, right? Again, other-centered ethic. I'm not doing this for me. I'm not doing this uh, for me to have strength, but to be able to reveal this other-centered ethic. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor that you would do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Again, he's trying to win Philemon's heart. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. And this is a key verse right here, verse 16. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave. As a dear brother, he is very dear to me, but even dear to you, both as a fellow man and a brother in the Lord. So I want you to get, this is how uh, the ethic of the kingdom of God and the other-centered ethic begins to break down social issues. You begin to have this as an understanding of, of owner, slave owner, and slave, right? And you begin to have this 
power and powerless dynamic. And what happens is the ethic of, of, of other-centeredness based upon the value of love as shown through Jesus and his display of this on the cross, it begins to take, and, and what Paul is saying is this has to become this, and what does he say? As a fellow man, right? As someone who is an image bearer of God, as someone who is made in the image of God, here's now how you see him, but that's not it. And this is where Christianity doesn't just create a, a sense of everyone has dignity and worth and purpose, and, and it doesn't just create something where there's inequality that we begin to see in any racial situation or any power and powerless situation in any advantaged and disadvantaged situation that we don't just see, hey, fundamentally because they were made in the image of God, they're equal. But here's what, what happens. It goes one step further. Not only this is that you find community in this brotherhood together. So you go from power and powerless to um, unified in, uh, in equality to, um, to connected together in Christian community. This is the radical thing. This is what began to change the world uh, and continues to change the world when we begin to understand what, what the ethic of the kingdom begins to speak into our reality. So an other-centered ethic turns a slave into a fellow man and a brother in the Lord. So this is this powerful, powerful context. And so if you begin to say, hey, what does salt look like? How is it that this begins to flavor the world around us that is radically divided, right? And to put this in a, in a context of unity and ultimately togetherness. And we're gonna continue and we're gonna see how this all kind of culminates together. It says this in verse 17. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. So Paul, as the advantaged one here, is, is beginning to be an advocate for Onesimus. For if he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. And I want us to get that oftentimes with advocacy, our words are empty. What Christians do, what people who follow after Christ do, is they take the, not just the words, but they take action on the words to begin to address the issues and to be able to say, and this is not just, I'm just not gonna yell on social media about this. I'm gonna take actual action. So what does Paul say? Hey, I'm gonna vouch for him. If he owes you anything, if there's anything that's gonna keep you from fully integrating Onesimus back into Christian brotherhood, then you just charge it to me because that is worth the cost for this to be, for Christian community to be established. And so he says this, I do wish, brother, that I may have some of the benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident, or let me actually, let me go back. I, Paul, I'm writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Not to mention that you owe me your very self. <laughs> I love that part. Well, was a little salty there, right? Um, here, here's where this gets to this, you know, here's where you begin to see this. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. And, and this is what happens as a disciple uh, or as a disciple maker speaks to his disciple. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. This is Paul suddenly saying, the vision of your life, Philemon, is to free yourself from the rut 
There's a social rut that you have found yourself in, and there's a calling from God to be able to get out of the rut, and he's giving a vision for who Philemon can become, and to be able to say, here's what I believe that you can be. I'm confident that you will not all just be obedient in being able to take this and ultimately bring it to this, but that you will even do more. And here's what we're going to see in just a minute, that that, that radically is manifested. So knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one more thing, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in an answer to your prayers, right? Paul's in prison. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in, in Christ Jesus, sends you his greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And there you go. You've read an entire book of the Bible this evening. There you, you can check that off your list. What did I do? I just read an entire book of the Bible. There you go. We did it together. Way to go, guys. And here's where we get to see um, this idea. This entire book called Philemon just shatters, shatters the worldview that basically has people that are advantage and disadvantage and replaces it with this other centered ethic where the highest value is love. So what is he appealing to? He's appealing to love. And so how do we take this and how do we land this as people to be unifiers in a divided world? How do you take and you begin to say the ethic of the kingdom of God, the worldview of the gospel, how does that begin to play itself out? Because we have issues that deeply divide us that need to have believers that are salt in this world and begin to know how to apply that through their world. So we have this understanding of this ethic of other centeredness and probably you believe that ethic as well, that the salt of the uh, of the of Christianity has in some way informed your mindset. The question is this: Is it actually practical? Because there's a difference in what is theoretical and other centeredness, and what is practical and us actually being other centered. And one of the issues that when we really get into this, we find ourselves divided is this issue of racism. Now, we don't know if Onesimus uh, was a slave because of his race, but we do know that this is one of those things that when we talk about racism, that, that ultimately slavery in, in the historical understanding of it has been a part of a, a racial reality. And so how do we take this? And how do we understand this ethic of other-centeredness and this value of love and apply it to the issue of racism in our world and ultimately allow it to be something that unifies us and not divides us? And to do that, I want to be able to take and, uh, and understand the different ways that we see this. And so I'm going to press into us, and, uh, and this might not be a popular way to see this, um, but I want to help us to understand really what the gospel worldview says. So when we think about racism, uh, I believe there's kind of two ways that we have that, that this lands. One is this. We have this understanding of, of first race. And, uh, and first race is this. It's really this understanding of the way uh, of what I was born as. And so your first race, this is what you were born as. And when that begins to be the primary worldview that you have, we have identity, identity politics. We have really something that uh, characterizes oftentimes a left-leaning kind of ideology that basically says, hey, this is the primary way that you're to see the world through the race that you're born as. And, and for that to be what affects everything else, 
so that you begin to see this. The problem with that is what that does is that creates isolation. And that isolation ultimately leads us to more division and not unity. And so it looks a little bit like this. It looks like a bag of marbles. And a bag of marbles has all of these different, uh, you know, they're different. All of these, they have different designs, different colors. And really what brings them together is just a geographical reality. And so they're put together and they're isolated, but they're in in the same context, right? And this is where I I believe that we see oftentimes our world, that there's isolation, but there's uh, geographical proximity. That we're around a lot of different cultures, but they're still very isolated from each other. And, And so here's the second way. The second way is this, that this second race is this idea of what I was born in, or not what I was born into, but what I was integrated into, or, or the general uh, racial reality of the world around me. So in this, that might be majority culture, minority culture, whatever it is, that's different for, for all of us, right? But you, there's, this, there's this idea of the context that we live in. And, um, and this is oftentimes the value of the context that people that are coming in that have a, a, a different racial reality should completely conform to the general realities of this race that they're integrated into is this second race idea. And oftentimes you find this on this conservative side of this, that the integration is, is the key to making this work, that everybody should just be integrated. And here's, the, uh, here's like the, the mental image of this melting pot, right? And this melting pot is this thing that everything should look the same, be the same, and we should all ha- kind of have a similar uh, uh, understanding of this, of this world, right? So this is, this is what this looks like, this, this melting pot mentality. So that's first race, second race, and I want you to give you an alternative view to this. The alternative view to, to being able to say, I'm, the priority is that we say, hey, my primary understanding is my, uh, the race I was born into, or the primary understanding is that I would just absolutely integrate into this, into this context that I was inserted into. Those are the, these are the two sides. These are the two ruts. These are the two things that, that make our, our world divided together. Hey, you should be like this. No, you should be like this. No, you should be like this. No, you should be like this, right? And there's a third way. And this third way is really us understanding that this third race is who I am in Christ. Who I am in Christ. And this third way is understanding our identity as made in the image of God, first and foremost, and then, and then also as believers are put together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And when that begins to be the priority, and then secondarily, it's the, it's the context that I live in, and secondarily, it's the way that I, the heritage that I have and what I was born into. What this does is it creates a unifying reality and not a divided reality. And we begin to say, hey, the most important thing about me is that I'm a part of the human race. The most important thing of, about me is who I am in Christ and that unifying reality that I keep all of the distinctives about myself, that I don't try to erase the distinctives but I keep the distinctives and yet they're secondary to the primary reality and that primary context that I am a child of God. Does that make sense? That we would begin to see this as this unifying factor and we would move from a divided, a divided reality to a unified reality. And in this, here's what, here's what Paul says. Paul says in, in, another, in another book, he says in, uh, in Galatians, He says in verse 528, 
There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now of that, you begin to see this gender reality, you begin to see this racial reality, you begin to see this social standing reality, and all of that is, all of that is erased. And all of these different parts of our identity that we could over-identify, I over-identify with my gender, I over-identify with my race, I over-identify with my status in the world, they all are secondary to the primary understanding of being able to say I'm a child of God. And if we begin to say I'm a child of God and my identity is from Christ, we talked about this yesterday, that begins to create so much peace in our hearts that we're not trying to manipulate the circumstances, but God has already won our hearts. He's already been there to provide everything that we need. And ultimately we get our worth, value, and our significance from him alone. And so therefore we don't have to fight to over-identify with our gender, our race, or our social standing. And this is what Paul says, and this is what it looks like. And so how do we begin to build this out? How do we take this ethic and we apply it practically. Because again, there's a difference between I theoretically believe in this ethic of other centrality or I am actually applying this. And what I would say is this, there's a lot of people who think this is who I should be. But church, what we have to be is the people who actually apply this. And we begin to say the motivation for us is ultimately because of Jesus. And so why do we begin to do this? We have to go back to this reality that Jesus came. He came from heaven to earth. He, the incarnation of God himself. And he lived a perfect sinless life. And this perfect sinless life that he lived on our behalf, he ultimately sacrificed so that we might have access to God. And so that we might not walk in, in, in the wrath of God, in the judgment of God, because we walked our own way. But through the blood of Jesus, through his sacrifice for us, we have access to God himself. Not because of what we did to deserve it, because none of us deserve it, right? But because of the free gift of grace that he demonstrated that while we were yet sinners, he died for us, that we did not deserve any of it. And it was an others-centered ethic. And so we begin to say, because of the way that Jesus lived towards us, because of the free gift of grace, because of the overwhelming avalanche of love to us, what we begin to do is we don't hoard that. We don't use this as a, as a cul-de-sac of love, but we flow out of love. Uh, uh, we flow this love out from us, right? And so others around us begin to see this. And this is what should characterize believers, people who believe in Jesus, people who follow Jesus more than anything else, is that there's an actual ethic of being able to see this radically demonstrated. That it's not just a theory that we say in a social experiment, but it's a reality to our everyday lives. How do we do it? I think there's four phases. Four phases for us as we begin to understand what it looks like to apply this others-centered ethic of love to the world around us, specifically in the context of the div divisive nature of racism. So let me go through this. The first thing, the first phase that we have to address is what I would call a phrase of, uh, of ignorance. So this phrase of, a phase of ignorance, and this is, this is what it looks like. It's a generalized pre presuppositions about race 
and culture. And it's based upon myths and stereotypes, right? It's based upon something that we don't have firsthand knowledge of. But these are the stereotypes. And we begin to think, hey, this is, this is what it's like. So it's generalized and, and presupposes all of these things. That there's an isolation from people of different backgrounds. That there's an isolation of people from different backgrounds in terms of being able to have interaction with them. That there's a complacency that, that I'm, I'm not interacting with these people from different backgrounds. And there's a complacency basically saying, I don't even want to. A complacency with remaining in circles you're comfortable with and familiar to you. So let me tell you how this plays out in my life. When I was in, uh, when I was in high school, I, I grew up in a, in a town. I graduated with 726 people from my, from my high school class, of which, um, from, from my estimation, uh, there were three uh, that were African-American. And so there was, a, there was diversity in terms of uh, Hispanic population, but, but not really in an African-American population. I go to college and I go to this dorm and it's 100% different. And in fact, me and my roommate uh, on our floor, on our wing, uh, were, were the only people that were not African-American. And all of a sudden I began to have this realization that I was ignorant to really what uh, the entire dynamic and, uh, and the entire culture of, of really African-American realities were. And so I go into this and all of a sudden it's an, it's an overwhelming reality and I begin to quickly become a learner. And this is that second part. As you go from ignorance to awareness. And awareness looks like this, is that if there becomes a genuine concern about the conditions that others face. There's a desire to learn more about the interest and the perspectives of others. There's an appreciation for the importance of the multi-ethnic experience with the gospel and in this gospel community. And so uh, I get to college and, uh, and this is this reality. And so here's what I decided to do. Um, I go and I join a gospel choir. And, uh, and so I find out where they meet and I'm like, I need to apply this bass voice somewhere. So I go to this, to this gospel choir and I show up and, uh, and I'm the only white guy that shows up to this thing. It is, it is, it is just me and it, it is, uh, every, everyone else there is African-American. And so I walk in and, uh, and it is, it is, uh, I immediately get, <laughs> get labeled. They, they start using this word salt. Um, and, and they use just, they don't use my name. They just say, Hey, salt, come here. And, uh, and I didn't understand it for a little slow here. Right. Um, and then, so I leaned over and I was like, Hey, why does everybody keep calling me salt? And he says, because everyone else is pepper. And, uh, and I was like, okay, I, I get it. And, and this was just all of a sudden I, I began to I- engage in this and um, it's like no choir I've ever been in in my life, right? I've not learned any of the moves. And they're like, hey, Salt, man, you gotta get with it. Um, Cause there's some moves, um, we don't stand still and sing. And it was this incredible experience, but it was radically eye-opening. And all of a sudden I was, uh, all of a sudden there was an awareness, all of a sudden there was an appreciation. All of a sudden it was like, hey, this is different, that, 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 that I didn't realize how different this was. And I began to, uh, I began to engage in this. And so this is this next part, this interaction that we have to go from ignorance to awareness to interaction. An interaction is time spent together and it breaks down false assumption and it garners friendship. There's a mutual respect and active listening and an intentional investment. 
that there's initiative to cultivate bonds, bonds with people in your circle of influence who are not like yourself. That we stop the complacency of just saying, hey, even if it's not, if even if it's subconscious, we tend to surround ourselves with people just like us. But when we begin to say, hey, what does it look like for us to apply the other-centered ethic, we begin to surround ourselves with others intentionally that don't look like us. And then ultimately what you begin to see is a gospel community, which is cultivated by a depth, depth of relationship that produces transparency, bearing another's burdens, outdoing one another to show honor, rejoicing with each other, weeping together, etc. An outward demonstration of an other-centric, other-centered love because of the love of Christ. And what I want us to get is that we can't go from ignorance to awareness and skip right over to gospel community that there's got to be integration and there's got to be initiation. And this is where we begin to say, hey, this is how we become a unified group of people and not a divided group of people. And this is what it looks like for us to display this other-centered ethic. And as we do, it does radical things in the world. It changes, it changes lives. So here's the postscript on this Philemon story. There's a guy named Ignatius. And uh, he writes, and he is uh, talking about stuff that is happening in Ephesus. And he mentions the leader of the church of Ephesus. And you guess who the leader of the church of Ephesus is? A guy named Onesimus. So if you think about Ephesians, the book of the Bible there, Ephesus, one of the most significant cities, you begin to think about the leader of the church of Ephesus, this church that multiplies. It's like this leadership pipeline explosion that's going all over Asia Minor and beginning to plant churches. The guy who's leading this was once a slave, and now he's a leader in the church. I want you to get this changes the world around us. Resonate, may we be these people. May we be people because of Jesus Christ and because of the deep love that he shows for us that begin to take and be salt and light to the world around us. Begin to take this other-centered ethic from, from theory to practice and we become the people that begin to unify our campuses and our communities. May it be so with us. Let me pray for you. God, uh, ask that you would give us courage to walk in this. That you would give us courage to be the kind of people that don't simply fall into the ruts of the culture. Lord, give us backbone to be able to stand up to racism. Give us clarity to be able to sacrifice ourselves that we might deeply show the ethic of other-centered love. Lord, I pray that we would take and we would be light, that they would look at our lives and they would see Jesus in them and say, what is different? So in the same way, Lord, that you've swept across um, countless cities. Lord, did you sweep across our cities and use us to do it in your holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. If you are a college student in the Northwest, or if you simply want to see college students come to know Jesus, please connect with us by visiting resonate.net.